0: Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast. We are finishing up our series called Questions, God, Faith, Life, and the Challenge of Being Human. Today's question was, how do you know God? Question for you to start with is, who or what has most shaped your relationship or your perspective with God? Enjoy. the last sermon of our question series where for seven weeks you've been sending in questions and we've been doing our best not to answer but to ask better questions along the way and so the final question is the question that asks all of the questions which is really how do we know God And if we're asking how do we know God then we're really asking how are we human So, to answer that, we need to do a few things this morning. First, we need to talk about not what do we know, but how do we know it, and to do that, we probably have to talk about Buddhism, Catholicism, and Judaism, as one does. And then if we're gonna talk about that, then we probably have to talk about tricycles, because that's gonna get you to the best place of having to know God. And if you do that, then we have to talk about a lot of different colors and spiral dynamics and consciousness, and then if we're gonna do that, then we probably should see how is the Bible way ahead of its time, all across the spectrum. And then if we're gonna do that, then we probably have to close with Desmond Tutu. You see what I'm saying? Great. So, how do you know God? I grew up in a Protestant tradition, evangelicalism, a big giant church with lots of lasers and fog machines. We did pretty good for ourselves. And in that tradition, when I grew up, I was rewarded for what I knew. And so as a little kid, when I memorized Bible verses, I would get a star next to my name, Awanas. Can I get an amen? Um, And then when I grew up even bigger, I was compared to other traditions by what do I know? And so everything was about something that was going on up here cognitively and how are we rearranging this theological furniture. And somehow the however you got the furniture rearranged, that meant that that's what you somehow knew about God. And so then we had things like apologetics and we would debate other groups because obviously the most certain thing that God can be is if you can have God figured out in your mind. And it never like, came to the reality of maybe if I have God figured out, that's not a very big God in the first place, but that's not the narrative that I was told. So uh, as I got a little bit older than that, I started to see that some other traditions have a lot of good things for us. For example, uh, in Catholicism, when you go to seminary, you are not allowed to touch the Bible until you know how to think, not what to think. So you go through philosophy and the different Christian traditions and you gain different perspectives and you do that for years. And then they say, now it's time to open up the Bible because you realize there's been 10, 15 different interpretation streams throughout this whole Judeo-Christian thing from the very beginning, not just one. And maybe you need a broader perspective before you start seeing the Bible through a very specific lens, because the Bible can become a rather dangerous weapon. All right? Then you look to the Buddhists, and Brittany talked about this the other day, that anytime a Buddhist monk is about to become a monk, they do three years of training where they go through all of the teachings of Buddha. And then the first part of your training, what you do is you have to ask as many negative questions as possible of what are the, imp- the negative implications of me following the Buddha? And then all of your teachers surround you and they have a big smile on their face and they have to listen to you talking about the negative implications of following these teachings. And then after you do that, you go through the positive implications of following these teachings so that you always see within yourself there was never just one way. There's multiple perspectives, viewpoints, layers here to what it means to be human. And then finally, Judaism, the very training of Jesus, and we talked about this a lot in our Proverbs series, was this rabbinic training where there was lots of layers to this thing. Very early on, when you're five to eight in Judaism, you have to memorize the Torah Really exciting books like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and everyone's favorite, Deuteronomy, right? So you memorize those books uh, as a little kid. And after you've ingested those things, then for the next three years, you're taught to ask questions, challenge the books, wrestle with them, play with them. Nine-year-olds are doing this, by the way, right? It's saying, yeah, you've memorized it now. Wonderful. Now do something with it. See if it stands up to even your little nine-year-old life. And if that works out well, then a rabbi would come around and you would follow that rabbi and follow their teaching and their perspective. But you could follow their perspective because you knew the other perspectives as well, right? So in a lot of traditions around the world, Christian traditions and even other faith traditions, there's this deeper reality that asking questions is incredibly important to the way that you grow as a human being and the way that you grow in God, which obviously leads you to the reality of tricycles. So, tricycles. If you were to think of a tricycle, you see that there's a little wheel in the front, and that little wheel in the front is your experience. And your experience is incredibly important. Your experience says a time in history that you were born in, because did you know that you think differently than somebody in the 15th century? This is mind-blowing, I know, right? Uh, it has to deal with your social context. Did you know that even living in 2017, there are other human beings who think differently than you and they live in the same state? I know, this is so radical, right? This is crazy. But we don't always talk about God or the Bible that way. There is an absolute truth that will never be touched and it demands and you know, offers truth to the whole world and regardless of your time and place and history, this truth is just permeating in the universe. Tell me how that worked out for you. That's a challenging thing to say in a church. It's not that there is not a truth. It's just that you experience that truth from your subjective point of view. Why? Because you are a finite being encountering the infinite. And so all we do is try to put words and experiences and feelings to a reality that's far greater than any of ourselves. And that's a good thing. That is called faith. So not only do you have a time and a place in history that you live, you also have your own unique set of issues. You grew up in an awesome family an abusive family, a war zone, a drug-free zone, whatever it may be. And that is shaped psychologically and spiritually and emotionally, even physically, the way that you've lived. And then not only that, but you grew up in a larger circumstance that some of you grew up in a Reagan administration. Our children will grow up in a Trump, right? That will shape the way that they see the world, whether you want it to or not, there is a shared consciousness that is taking place. All of those realities shape the experience that each and every human being has ever, ever had. And in the back two wheels, in faith traditions, we say one side is scripture, that there is a place that we look to as a foundation for understanding what it means to be human and how we experience God. And on the other side is tradition, saying you can, Sola Scriptura doesn't work because you have experience and you are coming to that scripture through a tradition, whether you want it to or not. As darn as the Protestants tried to say it's just the Bible and the Bible alone, well, now there's 100,000 denominations in Protestantism that are all offering you a tradition and a perspective of that scripture, right? So no matter what, tradition is shaping you. So tradition And scripture are these great things that have lasted thousands of years and have a ton of wisdom to offer us. But We interpret all of that wisdom by our little front wheel. That is our own unique experience and how the way that we see and understand the rest of the world. So with that said, Spiral Dynamics. Spiral Dynamics is an industrial psychology that was developed in the 1950s and 60s by a PhD uh, named Claire Graves. And then Claire Graves kind of passed this information on to a person named Don Beck and Ken Wilber, and these are all boring names that you can Google later. Um, But what these people have done is they said that, how do we have a frame for understanding a lot of disciplines and how we understand consciousness as a whole and how we put consciousness together? So how do we understand history? How do we understand psychology and spirituality and theology and economics? right, and how do we understand archaeology and sociology and anthropology, and how are all these disciplines just contributing to the one reality, which is we're trying to better understand and connect and encounter God, and we're trying to know what it means to be human, which is why we subdivide all of these things as an experience and as a mean of saying, this is how I better frame what it means to be human, but maybe in a very specific area. So they're asking a more macro question of how do you put some of these things together? And they started talking about that reality as consciousness, Uh, this awareness, this understanding, this experience that we have with reality and how that reality is growing and expanding as human beings evolve and move forward in history and time and in all the other contexts that we have. And so what they did with Spiral Dynamics is they tried making simple color frames to say, these are the colors that we're gonna to use to try to represent these areas of consciousness. But like anything else, that's not black and white. And these colors, these waves of consciousness bleed into each other. Just like when you're on an ocean and you, or you're at the beach and you see waves crashing to shore, there's a moment where that wave is peaking, it's cresting, it's crashing, and it's even kind of folding back into itself into the next wave. So has consciousness been doing that all through history? This is gonna come to the ground, I promise. We have to fly at 30,000 feet just for a little bit. So here's how we start in consciousness with beige. Beige is this, it's your survival. It's your instinctual self. So what we're gonna go through is this little cone spiral thing right here. I am obviously an artist, Um, you're welcome. And, but don't think of this as two-dimensional, think of this as much more three-dimensional and robust, and that if you were uh, looking through the wholest or the fullest view of consciousness, you'd be looking down through a big funnel all the way to a base self that we all have. All right. And that all of these realities are represented in us as human beings at this place, probably in a place like Los Angeles in 2017. So your beige, your base self, your survival, your instinctive self, like this is human beings who are no longer like Neanderthals. This is like Homo sapiens making the leap, so to speak. This is the reality that somehow we have the divine spark. Somehow we are made in the image of God. Yes, I just used evolutionary uh, science and spirituality all in the same phrase. Why? Because it can work, and it does work, and it is working. You're here. So uh, we have this reality that somewhere back in the day, right, there was a consciousness that we had that was different than all of the other animals and Neanderthals. And there was this instinctual level that we have that was different. Uh, There's this great book called Sapiens by this Israeli anthropologist who writes that one of the reasons that Homo sapiens were so successful is that we had an ability to tell myth. We had an ability to tell stories that linked us together in a much more profound way. And so what we're doing at this beige level is what people are doing all of the time, where the world is just six inches in front of us. We are trying to survive, eat, have sex, do whatever we need to do to make it today. Uh, You know who does that? Hunters and gatherers. You know who does that? People who are chronically homeless. The world is not big and broad with consciousness. It's literally, how am I gonna make it the next two hours? You know who does that? If any of you in here experience addiction in any way, you know what the bubble is. You know what obsession is. You know what compulsion is. And that's your beige consciousness going crazy. You you have these other parts of your being, but you can't see the world more than two inches in front of your face. People who live in war zones, go ahead and try to look at Picasso when you're in the middle of a war zone. You can't, why? The world's too intense in front of your face right there. So this is something that's incredibly important in humanity's survival, and somehow we can make it through war zones and through addiction and through a lot of other pain and wounds. We can make it through hunting and gathering because this beige consciousness somehow worked for us. If you can go from there, then you go to purple, And purple is kind of the magical, mythical, or tribal self that all human beings have. We went from being hunters and gatherers, and then we moved into an agricultural revolution. And what happened in an agricultural revolution is that we're starting to grow our own plants and animals. And sometimes we realize that some years are hotter and some years are colder than others. And that really messed up the way that we grew things. And so what did we do as human beings? We must now pray and sacrifice to the gods. And if we do the right prayers and the right sacrifice, then maybe the gods will be happy with us and our crops and our plants and our animals will all do better this year. This is a basic factor in all of us. You're like, oh, that's not how I think. How many of you lived with this deep cause and effect in your brain every day? Somebody cuts you off on the road or something bad happens to you and you're like, what did I do to make God angry at me today? Anyone ever have that? Or things are going really well for you and you're like, I must have gone to church twice this week, right? Right? We have these deep cause-and-effect spiritual mythical realities at the base of all of us. And it's a tribal identity that holds us together because there's someone else out there that shares that same cause-and-effect belief that when they read their Bible for 30 minutes the morning too, God too was more pleased with them and you, right? And we share those narratives together and we say, come on. So you have beige, you have purple, and then we have a broader self, which is red, Red is we've moved from the agricultural world and now we've moved into civilizations. we moved into cities. It is our power and egocentric self. So what happens in red, is what we start to do is we start to realize that our ego is incredibly important for the survival of human beings, right? Each of us has an ego in a psychological perspective. And this ego is very bad at times because this ego gets fired up and angry and when people cut us off, we think it's a good idea to go back and cut them off and then flip them off and then we see what happens with the great dance of the universe. Anyone ever been there? Amen, okay. Um, Or we have the moment of Thanksgiving dinner and where does our ego come out, right? When uh, my you-know-who grandmother starts talking about that fundamentalist thing and how the rapture's about to happen in two days. And I'm like, okay, here we go. Uh, We have an ego that's real in each and every one of us and we need it, but it's also a very dangerous thing. And so for much of civilization, we needed powerful people who made us feel safe. So we had the Caesars, we had empires, we had kings, we had Rome, and it made each of us feel very safe, even though it's all about domination and it's all about power. And we'll come back to that reality in a little bit because American consciousness is very red right now for a lot of different reasons. If you have ever wondered about Joel Osteen, the reason that he's so successful is he speaks to the reds in this world and the purples really well. He speaks to a lower level of consciousness in a way that says this, I know it's hard to be human. I know that it's difficult to be you, but it's gonna be okay. You're awesome, you're great. That's what it is, right? And you're like, your ego's like, oh, thank God, right? (laughs) I am awesome. No one ever told me that I was a great bike rider as a four-year-old. I'm a bike rider, come on. And we need that kind of preaching in the world. And we need the Joel Ossians just to say, yeah, you're pretty great. So we move from red and we move to blue, and blue kind of happens a little bit later in history. It probably came about during the Axial Age, everyone's favorite age, and if you don't know what the Axial Age is, gotta breathe, by the way. You should go look it up. It's when like every major world religion came on the scene in about a 500 year period from 700 to 200 BC. That's super fascinating. Why did that happen? I don't know, research it. Great, so the Axial Age probably came up around then, but became much more potent around 600 A.D., after the Justinian Plague, everybody's favorite plague of the first millennia. And what happened in the Justinian plague is that for about a 10-year period on Earth, the Earth cooled about five degrees. And so plants and crops died all over Europe and in Asia. And as those plants and crops died in Europe and in Asia, the population decreased from about 300 million to 200 million people on planet Earth. This has also simultaneously happened when the Roman Empire is falling apart, and at the same time when Christianity and Islam are both the power players on the scene. So when hundreds of millions of people are dying around you, The biggest empire that the world ever seen has collapsed, and two religions rise to the top, now you begin to see the world in a much stronger absolute truth. You have an answer to the pain that just happened, and God is going to get you through that. And that consciousness carried the world for a thousand years. And in the United States, where we had protection of religious freedom, this blue consciousness was here in our midst until about 1968. So that's why you always have these Generation X and millennial people who look at baby boomers and they're like, we have complete distrust of authority, right? Where baby boomers are like, no, 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 what are you talking about? Like the presidency is a good thing. The constitution, just read the Bible, man, right? Because they have these two different ways of seeing perspective and consciousness in the world. And so blue is incredibly important for humanity kind of making it through some tumultuous times. And us gathering together around scripture or the constitution or some greater absolute where we all can say, we don't have to deal with the powerful egos of red anymore. Doesn't that feel good? We don't have to deal with the cause and effect of Justinian plagues, which is not what they called it when it happened, right? Doesn't that feel better? And blue is incredibly needed. Most churches through even the United States today are still blue. They're trying to say, believe in this absolute. Don't we all feel better when we have that answer? And there's a part of this that says, yes, right? So we move from blue and we go to orange. And orange kind of happens uh, in, a, in a lot of different ways. It happens in Western Europe. Um, it's, uh, it happens in Western Europe during the Enlightenment. And so orange is this modern perspective. It's kind of the achiever, the competitive, the individualistic self. And so you have the Justinian plague happen. For a 1,000 years, we live in this blue consciousness where the church controls Europe, right? It's no king, it's no whoever, it's God. And then you have the black plagues come along. And now you have another 25% of the population die, and you have a lot of thinkers in Italy and in Germany and France saying, well, clearly God's not working for us. All these people are dying, right? So now consciousness shifts again for one of the same reasons, but they're asking different questions. And the Enlightenment happens, and you have a lot of people who say, we don't need a God to figure out these answers. We're going to figure it out on our own. And so often the blues are like the true blue believers, and oftentimes we see the orange as like the scientific atheist kind of stereotypes. And that was kind of true in the early 20th century, and they're competing forces of consciousness against each other because they're seeing the outcomes and the realities and the causes of the world in two different ways. But also oranges were very much baby boomers. They got us out of World War II and they got us into this new age of technology and science where information and data were flowing at a million miles an hour. And all that orange was doing was saying, hey, look at blue, what if we can move beyond that? You wanna know who a great orange is? Bill Hybels, the pastor of Willow Creek Church. Cause he looked at all the blue mainline denomination churches around him and he said, what if there's a sleeker way of doing this? What if we do have lasers, right? And there's a secret sensitive reality to that, which says, what if our churches look more like our culture, and maybe more people will want to participate with it? That was incredibly creative. And almost all evangelical megachurches today follow an orange consciousness. They're looking at the stability of blue, but they're saying, we can mix a little Taylor Swift with this, am I right? <laughs> yeah. And now you have an orange achiever kind of consciousness that takes place, which is really helpful. You jump from orange, then we eventually get to green. And green is the last part of this first tier level of consciousness. And this is kind of a postmodern world perspective. In this postmodern world perspective, it's, it's kind of the reality where you see everything together a little bit. And you kind of understand that it's a global consciousness or a global awareness. So people in this reality are much more PC. They they have a realization of the differences that that are around us and how do we hold this reality together. It's green for a reason. These are like ecologically focused people. And down here in some of these truths, you're like, I don't care about the environment, right? Like in the orange world, it's like we're just moving forward in progress. If we put all this carbon in the world, why does it matter, right? Or blue's like, the world's gonna end before that ever happens, so let's just let God take care of it, right? We can kind of keep, reds just like, at all. Like, you know, let's just do this thing. And those consciousness are all within us in some capacity. But here's what's interesting from an American political landscape, is that this was probably a Bill Clinton in orange. We're going to move this thing forward in a new way. He came from a Ronald Reagan, very blue. This is America. This is the greatest country on earth, and this is what we do. And then we kind of pendulum swung back to a George Bush kind of consciousness, which was kind of blue, which was, okay, great, you moved us forward a little bit, but we need to stabilize a little bit now. That probably worked really well with Islamic terrorism and all of the axis and evil and that kind of language, right? So then what happened is you have an Obama who swings you way forward into green, and now you have a lot of U.S. people who are in blue, so you jumped a couple consciousness. They do not feel safe now. They feel very uncomfortable with how big this tent has gotten and how global and universal and wide that we're talking and it's very difficult for them. So when Hillary Clinton comes along, who's a strong green, and greens are generally get to greens because of education, because of some type of privilege that they've had, right? There's been some things that have allowed them to have a little bit broader perspective of the world. But you know what greens are also sometimes mean? They call them mean greens for a reason. They're kind of judgmental. They kind of think that they're better than other people. And then we get this dialogue in the political US that kind of goes like this. The liberal and coastal elites think that they're better than us, right? And in middle America, we feel like, oh no, we want a little bit more safe and comfortable reality of truth. And so it's no surprise to me that we swing back probably to a red blue where we want a powerful leader who doesn't care about consequences, right? And so these realities, these pendulum swings are happening in the consciousness of humanity in each culture and as us and as individuals all the time. And so an awareness of these things help us to understand that's why when I go to that Thanksgiving dinner, I feel like I'm speaking with somebody from Mars because there's a reality of, oh, these consciousnesses are all within me and they're all vastly different in the world that we live in as well but and we need to have a broader perspective of how these things are held together. And so the final jump is to yellow and turquoise. And yellow and turquoise is this kind of second tier of consciousness where we call like the integrated self or a holistic self. And the difference between a yellow and a turquoise versus a green is that greens on paper are really good at, about being about Black Lives Matter. But when it comes to sacrificing their life for Black Lives Matter, they liked the idea of it better than the practices. How many educated people do you know who are mean green, very much are very PC and care about the world, but they're not dying for a cause that's not the majority? Right, and there's a distrust that takes place there. This was the distrust that most uh, Americans who were blue or red did had with Hillary Clinton. They didn't trust her on paper. Um, and this is the same distrust that most greens who are angry at the world have with a red, probably Trump, right? Um, and there's, there's different reasons that the distrust is going both ways. Um, and we need to have a broader awareness of what those realities are. But when you move into a yellow or turquoise, you're able to do two things. You're able to love all of the consciousness that is within you, from the addict or the angry person that comes out, to the cause and effect you that just wakes up this morning and feels like, I think God's a little bit happier with me, to the ego that is good or bad dwelling within you, right, to the absolutist in you that feels comfortable at times in some foundational things, to the part of you that's just like motivated, baby boomer, modernity, let's just get some things done, all the way to the ecological self of you that holds it all together, yellow and turquoise are able to look down at that and say, "Ah, oh, that's me, and I love me, and I love us, and I love where everything's at, but it's also able to critique it. Most of these other ones are unable to critique themselves because they're so locked into it. Why does all of that matter? Look at this passage from Jesus in Matthew five. Jesus says this, you've heard that the law says, which is by the way, Jesus pulling a good blue move. Whenever I speak at larger like mega churches, I always say, would you open your Bible too? And then all the blues in the room go, oh, all right, we have some authority here now right? So Jesus is doing that to all like the Pharisees and the people in the room. Would you open your Bible too? And they're like, oh, okay, okay. And then he pulls a hard, right, um, orange on them. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy, which is now huge, just like way level consciousness. But I say, love your enemies, pray for those who against you, persecute you, in that way you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For God gives sunlight to both the evil and the good, and God sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward—I cannot read today—what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect." My favorite word in this whole passage is the word for perfect because it does not mean absolute or complete. It means complete in the movement towards a completion of something, but not in an arrival state. The word telos there is all about this movement of consciousness to a broader perspective where 2000 years ago, a Jewish rabbi who said, I am the son of God, bold claims, right? Is saying, love your enemies. Do you understand that that's way ahead of its consciousness of the time? It's way ahead of uh, Jewish tribalism. It's way ahead of a strong Roman empire. It's way ahead, thousands of years ahead of even where we are today. It's saying, can you have a broader perspective that the rain and the sunshine are for all people and you will not master what God's doing? These words challenged us 2000 years ago and will keep challenging us because we're not arriving, we're just evolving and growing. And at every state of our evolution of consciousness, we'll still need this reminder because somebody will cut you off in Los Angeles and you will want to kill the fool, (laughs) right? That's so important to know that these realities are in us. And so I just wanna close with a bunch of Bible passages that are way ahead of their time. And what's so fascinating about the Bible is this reality that this consciousness, this much more integrated and holistic consciousness is there the entire time, sometimes very early on in our scriptures, but it's also mixed with the consciousness of the day. And you have to have good eyes to see as Jesus says and ears to hear this greater trajectory and movement that God is taking us towards, even in the midst of your time and your context in your place in history, So look at Genesis. It says this. This is after, right, the whole covenant sacrifice your child thing. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Notice the word all. Who does all include? Everybody. 3,000 years ago, there's a God who is speaking in the midst of tribal sacrifice animals and kids consciousness saying, but my telos, my perfection is when I bless all of creation. Psalm 24:1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all its people belong to God. In the Psalms, there's other Psalms that say things that are very beige, which are like, your enemy messes with you, you smash their children's head into rocks, right? Isn't that powerful that those scriptures are next to each other in the Bible? Why? Because as human beings, we feel that way some way, sometimes. I wanna smash my enemies' heads into rocks. And yet the Bible is pulling me forward saying, oh, but all of the earth is God's and all of the people is God's. And the Bible allows for our humanity to come out while always calling us into a greater telos, into a greater consciousness, into a greater evolution. Romans 3, I love that as a kid, no one ever told me verse 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I got this all of the time. No one told me 24. And all are freely justified by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. That's helpful. Yes, (laughs) right? Yes, we're all jacked up. Yes, we're wounded and we suffer and we hurt people and we bring death and violence into this world. And in the midst of that, all of us can experience freedom and grace and resurrection and love and peace and harmony. All is on both sides. Man, a God that makes room for all of that is pretty big. Galatians, for you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus and all who have been united with Christ in baptism and put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female for all are one in Christ Jesus. A tiny, little, minute religion called Christianity exploded from a few hundred people to over 40 million people in a hundred years. Why? Because of verses like this. Because of verses that said, whether you are a senator for Rome or you are a slave and you have no voice, you will come to the table as equals. God is pushing humanity forward. And so any place that we say that an other is less than any of us, or they have to jump through some kind of hoop, forgive us God for not opening wide the gates in a broader way. That's the reality that God leads us to. And then Ephesians, some pretty strong words. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord and one faith and one baptism and one God and Father who is over all and in all and living through all things. I think that just included the whole universe where this God is saying, mine, the good, the bad, no more hoops to jump through. This is the way of Jesus. And I'm sorry for all the places that lower consciousness destroys that reality for you. It's there for a reason, because human beings were living in Rome, because human beings were living in Galatia. But you wanna know some crazy things that Jesus never talks about? Jesus never quotes Joshua or Judges. Isn't that fascinating? That this much higher level consciousness, Jesus, son of God, son of man, never quotes passages that encourage violence or imperialism of any kind. That's pretty important for you to understand. Those passages are there, Jesus says, wonderful, but that's not about how we're moving forward. You need to understand those realities where you wanted to kill every man, woman, and child, and that's a thing that we do as human beings even today, but that is not the place that God calls us to and God's perfect telos for the world. And so we finish with Desmond Tutu. Uh, Actually, Chad is here, which is pretty convenient for this story. Hi, Chad. Hey, Chad and I went to South Africa uh, 11 years ago. And when we were in South Africa, uh, apartheid had only ended for about 10 years. And um, in in South Africa, there's three major people groups. There's whites, coloreds, and blacks. Uh, Whites are what you would think of as whites. Blacks are what would be Africans. And coloreds would be anybody who's not those very specific groups. These groups, not allowed to hang out together, right? Uh, There's a lot of very oppressive language that the church was propagating even on people to divide people uh, in a lot of ways. Still goes on all over the world. But Desmond Tutu, when given the opportunity of how are we gonna heal and reconcile and restore this nation, him and Nelson Mandela came up with a great plan for one another. The plan was this. When we bring all of these whites to trial for burning villages, for torturing children, for raping women, for oppressing us for a 100 years, will we return violence with violence? The answer is no. We will let these people come forward and confess their stories and we will hear them, but we will not return the violence." And then they did something pretty phenomenal. They said, let's have a bride together, which is the South African version of a barbecue. Do you want a higher level of consciousness? Then hang out with somebody who's not like you. Do you want a higher level of consciousness? Then do what Jesus did with all of his disciples. He didn't just talk about Samaritans. He didn't just talk about women. He didn't just talk about people that were not kosher in his society. He would always do this. We're gonna walk through Samaria every time. Because when you start having barbecues with Samaritans, you're gonna love them because you're gonna find out right away they are just human. And all of the ways that we've divided them, whether we call it sin or whatever made up stuff that we wanna do to reduce the consciousness of scriptures or the story of God that is getting in the way of the greater narrative of God's us to reconcile all things. That's the end goal. That's the hope. So my challenge and my ask for all of us in this room is this. If you want to grow in your consciousness, then think of one person right now. Think of one area in your life where you need to start hanging out with the other. Is that a white person? Is that a black person? Is that a gay person, a straight person, a Mexican, a this, a that, a Republican? There are some in California, I promise. Right, Whatever it may be, how do you need to sit at a table? Because I promise you that after a year of loving people well, I think it's gonna change where you're at. You might not jump all the way to loving your enemies, but you might have a little better understanding of who they are. And if you need help with that, then find a spiritual director, Find a therapist, find a good mentor, find a small group, listen to some podcasts, read a books. None of us have excuses for that. We can't find places that are gonna push us forward and encourage us to a broader understanding of someone else's narrative. So we would end with this question. What's one practical way you can grow in your own consciousness? Who's one person you can have a barbecue with? What's something that you need to tap into to expand your view for the reality of the, the sunshine and the rain Falls on everybody, my friends. And if you want to be perfect like God's perfect, then have a consciousness that embraces the entire world. Enjoy your conversations.